North Korea has fired dozens of missiles toward its border with South Korea. The South responded by firing a missile of its own. It's Wednesday, November 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, heading into the midterms, a new poll finds an edge in the enthusiasm of Republicans over Democrats. Also this hour, we go inside a conspiracy theory-packed pro-Trump group that's touring the country. It is part Christian revival, part QAnon MAGA expo, and part political rally. Plus, some local officials blame late school buses on fewer companies offering bus service. It's not like we're choosing from among four companies and we choose the one that's, you know, the best fit for us. You take what you can get. Forecast says sunny today, highs in the 60s. It's 7.01. I'm from NPR News in Washington. I'm Corva Coleman. Policymakers for the Federal Reserve will wrap up their two-day meeting today in Washington. And NPR's Scott Horsley tells us they're widely expected to boost short-term interest rates by three-quarters of one percent. The Fed has been raising rates at an aggressive pace. Uh, its benchmark interest rate was close to zero back in the spring. It's now above three percent, and by the end of today, it's expected to be close to four percent. That's the sharpest run-up in four decades. Mm. Greg McBride, who is chief financial analyst at Bankrate, says two big questions now are how much higher rates are likely to go and how long they're going to stay there. NPR's Scott Horsley reporting. The man charged with breaking into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco home and attacking her husband has been ordered held without bail. NPR's Eric Westervelt reports David DePap has pleaded not guilty to the charges. Dressed in orange jail clothing and one arm in a sling, injured, his lawyer said, during his arrest, DePap said little in his brief arraignment. His newly appointed public defender entered a not guilty plea on all state charges, which include attempted murder, burglary, and elder abuse. The one-time nudist rights activist in recent years was increasingly drawn to the QAnon mass delusion and other far-right conspiracy theories. The judge ordered DePap held without bail. Meantime, in Washington, the head of the U.S. Capitol Police said today's political climate calls for more resources to provide additional layers of security for members of Congress. Eric Westervelt, NPR News. The criminal trial of the Trump Organization in New York City is temporarily on hold. That's because a top company executive has tested positive for the coronavirus. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports the company executive has admitted to arranging untaxed benefits for other top Trump organization officials. Testifying with immunity, Trump Organization controller Jeffrey McConney coughed for two days on the stand, pausing frequently to drink water as the prosecutor walked him through ledgers, invoices, and emails. The document showed how McConney had played his role in an alleged scheme to avoid taxes by, quote, backing out various expenses from other executives' salaries and reporting the lower amount to the IRS. Those expenses included rent, cable bills, electronics, carpets, even nearly $6,000 in cash to tip one executive storeman. Though Donald Trump is not on trial, some of the invoices shown in court bore a thick black OK next to the initials DT. The trial is set to resume Monday, assuming the jury and judge stay healthy. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Reports from Turkey say that the Kremlin will resume participating in a grain shipment agreement. This was brokered by Turkey and the United Nations. It allows stalled Ukrainian grain shipments to be moved out of Black Sea ports. Russia had paused its participation in the agreement after some of its naval ships were attacked. You're listening to NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Officials in Natick are defending their handling of a case where a police officer was accused of sexually assaulting a colleague. This week, they agreed to release some documents about the incident after trying for more than two years to keep the case secret. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports. Court records show Officer James Quilty allegedly assaulted a dispatcher in a parking lot two years ago. But the town quietly decided to keep him on the force after a suspension. And he wasn't indicted until 20 months after the incident, after WBUR and a blogger asked about it. Natick Town Meeting member Cody Jacobs says releasing some documents is a good first step. However, I do think that it doesn't go far enough in giving people information and most importantly, in giving people reassurance. Town officials say they're committed to fair and transparent communications. But they won't release copies of their investigation with criminal charges still pending. WBUR is suing the town for the records. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Vice President Kamala Harris is expected to announce new steps to try to lower energy costs for families while she visits Boston today. The White House says the plan includes $4.5 billion in energy assistance for moderate to low-income families. It also includes funding for state programs that help people make their homes more energy efficient. Yesterday, National Grid implemented a 64 percent increase in its winter energy rates. The president of the Boston City Council wants to pause the city's redistricting process. Councilors have been debating this for weeks, sometimes heatedly. They're looking at how to tweak the city's districts and precincts. Council President Ed Flynn wants to create a commission to study the issue and try to come up with a compromise. The council is expected to take up that idea later today. The state's deer population appears to be booming. Wildlife officials say there are at least 110,000 deer in Massachusetts, and that's double what it was 30 years ago. Martin Feehan with the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife says that's not necessarily good news. Most people tend to relate a lot with deer vehicle collisions, so that's definitely a concern when it comes to human health and safety. There are also issues when you have high deer densities where it increases tick loads and tick densities, which then become an issue for Lyme disease as well as other vector-borne diseases. Feehan says deer can also harm crops and landscaping and affect conservation efforts by preventing seedlings from growing into mature trees. The time is six minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event featuring the PowerView Smart Motorization System. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's greatest comedy, November 17th and 18th at Symphony Hall. HandelandHaydn.org. In sports, Bruins won their sixth straight game last night. They beat the Penguins 6-5 to in overtime in Pittsburgh. The Bees will visit the New York Rangers tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics take on the Cavaliers in Cleveland. In our weather forecast, sunny, nice today. Temperatures in the mid to upper 60s. Tonight should be clear, lows in the 40s. Sunny again tomorrow and right through the weekend. Saturday and Sunday, we could get into the 70s. It is 58 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Scribner, publisher of Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, author of All the Light We Cannot See. Cloud Cuckoo Land is about the power of books to unite us. Available in paperback in bookstores and online. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. How many times have you heard the phrase, it all comes down to turnout? 
Well, you hear it a lot because it's true. And that is where we are in this election season right now. This morning, we've got new polling data from NPR, PBS NewsHour and Marist that may help us get a snapshot of where the electorate is right now. Joining us to talk through it, Domenico Montanaro, our senior political editor and correspondent. Hey, Domenico. Hey, good morning, Rachel. This is our last poll before all the ballots have to be cast. What stands out to you? Well, there are cross currents in this election that are making for a lot of uncertainty and volatility. I mean, on the one hand, voters continue to say inflation is top of mind, and they overwhelmingly said in our poll by 20 points that they trust Republicans to handle the issue more than Democrats. They also gave Republican Republicans double-digit advantages on crime and immigration, which they've been hitting on. Uh, Democrats, on the other hand, are continuing to hammer Republican opponents for their positions on reproductive rights, and voters are giving Democrats the advantage on abortion, as well as preserving democracy. So preserving democracy is not just another campaign issue, right? I mean, it is the question (laughs) upon which everything else rests. How important is that to all voters? Well, it's the number two issue on the list. It's tops for Democrats. And on how people are looking at this election, we've heard so much about election deniers running, uh, people who falsely believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Well, four out of five Republicans said they would be likely to vote for one of them as long as they agreed with their policy positions. You know, Republicans were also more likely to say that if their candidate lost, that their candidate should definitely not concede the race. Mm. And this is what we've seen you know, with former President Trump's rhetoric and how it's really filtered down to voters. You know, if there's any ray of light in this about U.S. elections, it's that three quarters of people, including a good majority of Republicans, say that they do trust their local and state elections officials to run fair and accurate elections. What does the survey says about how people are actually going to cast their ballots? Well, when we asked which party they would prefer uh, to see in charge of Congress if the election were held today, yeah. it was a dead heat. It was 46-46. And this is going to sound counterintuitive, but historically, that kind of number is bad news for Democrats. They usually need an advantage of about six points or more on that question to make gains in the House because so many swing districts are in right-leaning areas. Now, another warning sign for Democrats, even though we've seen that white women with college degrees in our polling uh, appear fired up, and they are vital uh, as a portion of the Democratic base. Other pillars of the Democratic Party are not. Black voters, Latinos, and young voters are all lagging far behind Trump voters, rural voters, and older voters. You know, just to show you how wide the gap is, 87% of baby boomers say that they're very interested in this election versus just 52% of Gen Z and millennials. So clearly right now, Republicans have the enthusiasm edge. It's so interesting that when we talk about this, we now talk about Trump voters as their own kind of constituency and voting block, and he's not even on the ballot. I mean, he has endorsed so many candidates in this year's midterms. Does the poll say anything about his current influence with voters? Yeah, and he's played a major role in these elections, you know, uh, endorsing candidates up and down the ballot. And the poll, though, found that Trump continues to be unpopular with a majority of voters. You know, he's, in fact, exactly the same unfavorability rating as President Biden, whose approval ticked down to 42 percent, by the way. And Trump's numbers are about where they've been. They just don't move very much at all. And it hasn't inspired a lot of confidence in Republican strategists who have talked to that Trump-style candidates make the most sense in purple states like Pennsylvania and New Hampshire 
or Georgia. Uh, but here we are. And if a lot of Trump candidates win, and especially if Republicans take control of the Senate, he'll take the credit for it. And we've seen parties often ignore their warts when they win, even though they're still warts. You know, but if those Trump candidates lose key Senate races and Republicans don't take control of the Senate, there are going to be a lot of finger pointing in Trump's direction. Another thing, Domenico, that's notable in this poll is how Americans think about divided government. This is interesting. It's sort of a common assumption, right, that most Americans think it's a good idea when two different parties control the White House and Congress. Another kind of checks and balance. But that's not the case anymore. Yeah, no, for decades, people leaned toward divided government as something they wanted to see to temper the party in power, but not anymore. You know, our survey found that 59% now actually say that they think it's better if the country is run by the same party. Just 38% say it would be better if the president and people who control Congress were from different parties. That's a huge reversal from 2017, for example, when 63% said it would be better if Washington was controlled by different parties. This is largely today driven by Democrats, three quarters of whom, you know, say that say this and they don't want to lose power. But a majority of independents said unilateral control is better as well. And Republicans were split. It's a real sea change for our politics. A lot of people just don't see compromise as possible and that the only way to get what they want out of politics is for full control. And there really is, you know, that's something new. NPR's senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Lawmakers and election officials are facing threats after the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, in their San Francisco home. The attack has exposed some of the shortcomings of the security around lawmakers. The question of who should be protected and how is being talked about on Capitol Hill and across the country as law enforcement officials warn of threats to political candidates and election workers. Let's talk this through with Washington Post congressional reporter Mariana Sotomayor. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, just what are the, what's the baseline here? What kind of protection is in place for lawmakers as they move around the country, talk with crowds, try to do their jobs? Well, it's pretty different when you're looking at leadership in both parties and your rank and file members. Leadership constantly has a security presence, a number of officers who are walking with them everywhere they go, including within the Capitol itself. They have security back home. But those kinds of things do not exist for rank and file members. Typically, it's up to the lawmakers themselves to request money, guidance from Capitol Police to be able to secure their properties, secure even their own district offices Mm. to make sure that they stay safe in this day and age. I understand that Capitol Security would naturally follow the Speaker of the House and not necessarily her family, but... It was her family and it was her house. I guess there were security cameras, right? Did the the Capitol Police take any uh, responsibility or effort to keep that home secure when she was not there? Well, yesterday, U.S. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger, in a pretty rare statement, actually noted that that attack was just an example of the everyday things that Capitol Police have to deal with. So, yes, they can monitor the security cameras outside of the home, but they were not physically present. We know that in the days after January 6th, for a significant number of time, there tended to be cop cars, usually from San Francisco District Police, that 
were actively outside of the home. But that was not the case a week ago. And in that same statement, Manger said that this is an example of why they need more resources. Capitol Police, especially since January 6th, have seen a number of retirements and have not been able to recuperate the numbers that they really do need to be able to protect all lawmakers on and off Capitol Hill. I research Abraham Lincoln. That's something that I write about. And there is a story in which a friend of Abraham Lincoln sees him when he's president walking through Washington with no security. And he says, I'm worried about your security. And Lincoln essentially says, it's pointless. Adding security would be like putting up one fence rail when the rest of the fence is down. What is the point of that? When you talk with lawmakers, are they a little fatalistic about what they do? You know, it has become a reality they have had to accept, especially after January 6th. And a good example of just that kind of conversation hundreds of years later is something that Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, she is a Democrat from Texas, had with a friend who texted her Halloween morning saying, please do not be in front of your house giving out candy. She says, you know, it is an honor to serve. And this is something that I've heard from many lawmakers. They want to be in office. But there are these considerations that they now have to take, and it really guilts them to see just how much worry this political climate and them being in it gives to their family and their friends. Mariana Sotomayor of The Washington Post, thanks so much. Thank you. A federal judge has sentenced a man accused of domestic terrorism to time served. Joseph Deby was part of an environmental and animal rights movement whose members were charged with setting fires across the western U.S. Conrad Wilson of Oregon Public Broadcasting has details. Between 1995 and 2001, federal prosecutors say the Earth Liberation Front and the Animal Liberation Front caused more than $45 million in fire damage to businesses and government buildings. Federal law enforcement once considered the groups the most significant domestic terrorism threat. This spring, Joseph Deby pleaded guilty in two of those arsons, a slaughterhouse in central Oregon that butchered wild horses and sold the meat in Europe, and a Bureau of Land Management horse corral in Northern California. I think he really regretted participating in that act. Matt Schindler is Deby's attorney. And it's not civil disobedience, it's like uncivil disobedience. He rejected it. Deby's sentencing marks the culmination of a case that spanned decades and around the world. Deby fled just before his indictment in 2006. He remained a fugitive, living in Russia and Syria, where he says he worked as an engineer on large-scale environmental energy projects. The FBI arrested him in Cuba in 2018. After his arrest, Deby spent 29 months in pretrial custody, followed by home detention. U.S. District Court Judge Ann Aiken sentenced Deby to time served and 1,000 hours of community service. A separate hearing will determine whether he'll share in paying $1.3 million in restitution. DB's sentence is less than other co-defendants, and that isn't sitting well with some in law enforcement. It's disappointing. Billy Williams oversaw the U.S. Attorney's Office at the time of DB's arrest. To see him not have to serve any additional time than what he did is unfortunate. It sends the wrong message. I don't agree with it. The FBI is still searching for one remaining co-defendant. And DB? He's moved on, working with the Native Conservancy in Alaska to help Native Alaskans grow more kelp, and in doing so, also combat climate change. For NPR News, I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the resignation of T. General Manager Steve Poftak after a stormy four-year tenure. Also, late school buses have become a fact of life in many districts across Massachusetts. Local officials say a big factor is that there are fewer bus companies offering service. It's 19 minutes past 7. WBUR supporters include AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com, authentic, artful, accomplished. MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. I'm Robin Young. Which are the popular anthems that achieved immortality? Oh, there's The Temptations, My Girl. They knew it was going to be a hit right away. They knew it was special. It's a song that everybody can relate to. As he said, everybody has that feeling of wanting that someone special. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our weather forecast, sunshine today. Temperatures in the upper 60s. Clear tonight with lows in the 40s and sunny again tomorrow. Highs in the 60s. It is 56 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avalara. Sales tax automation for businesses of all sizes designed to simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates and automatic filing. Learn more at avalara.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Focus Features, presenting Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and Anthony Hopkins. One family's pursuit of the American dream. From writer-director James Gray, everywhere Friday. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts' next governor will get to choose a new head of the T. MBTA General Manager Steve Poptak announced yesterday he's stepping down in January after four years on the job. In an email to staff, Poptak says he takes pride in what he and T employees have accomplished. He also acknowledged the T still has work to do on safety, but he says there's been progress. As WBUR's Simone Rios reports Poftac's tenure was turbulent on a number of fronts. Poftac served through a pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020. Mella Bush of the nonprofit T Riders Union said Poftac did something deeply unpopular during those protests. He allowed Boston police to use MBTA buses to mobilize around the city. But Bush says Poftac has been willing to admit when he was wrong. And everybody was P.O. They were, they were heated. And so I was asked, do you think he's racist? I said, no, I think what he did was racist, but I don't think he meant any harm by it. And then he apologized and said he'd never do it again. So someone who can apologize and learn from their mistakes. And that was Steve Poftak, Bush said. 
Poftak's departure marks the end of what was likely one of the most trying terms for a T-General manager. Following several incidents resulting in passenger injuries and some deaths, a scathing federal report found the T had neglected repairs and maintenance for years. After that report, many officials called for Poftak to resign. Former State Transportation Secretary Jim Aloisi says Poftak deserves some credit for toughing it out. Aloisi says he didn't agree with all of Poftak's policy choices, but he doesn't question Poftak's dedication to the MBTA. I do think that Steve has presided over certain initiatives, which I support, including changing the commuter rail schedules to hourly schedules. And I think, frankly, the most important thing was running the T right in the middle in the heart of the pandemic at an extraordinarily difficult time. Aloisi also says the next governor, Democrat Maura Healey or Republican Jeff Deal, should be able to select a new T-chief. And so stepping down gracefully was the right thing to do. It's appropriate for a person at that level, given the circumstances of where the T finds itself, uh, which is in a suboptimal position, that he uh, graciously step aside and let the new governor make a selection that hopefully will inspire rider confidence and also help the T rejuvenate itself. As for the next T general manager, Aloisi says it should be someone who knows how to run a transit system. And though there's people at the T who could do it, Aloisi thinks the ridership will be happier with someone who comes in from out of state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. Late and unpredictable school buses have posed a huge challenge to school districts. A shortage of drivers is often cited as one cause, but school leaders say changes in the school bus business market are also playing a role. WBUR's Carrie Young explains. For Boston parent Joanne Matthews, a late school bus has become a regular part of the day. Yeah. We're used to it from last year, so it always, if it says it comes at 7.57, it comes like at 10 past 8, 8.15, so it will get here. It should get here, you know. The ongoing problems with Boston school buses may be the most widely known, but other districts have struggled with this issue too. Take Worcester, for example. He was late for a solid week, and he get the late mark on his schedule. We're all waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and there's never any communication to tell us that, no, really, your bus is going to be coming a half an hour later than we ever told you it would. That was parent Claudia Restrepo and Eileen Benedetto. Bus companies have struggled to find drivers and staff routes, especially when the pandemic led to a labor shortage. But public leaders and bus industry officials say the bigger issue is that there's a shrinking number of companies that offer school bus transportation. One major industry group says it's down by at least 20 percent since the 1980s. You know, you want to call the office and say, hey, can you check out the GPS and find out where this bus is? But you can't get somebody on the phone because they're dealing with sort of crises all over the place. Salem School Committee member Beth Ann Cornell thinks her district's contractor, North Reading Transportation, is stretched too thin. NRT also serves other large urban districts like Haverhill, Lawrence and Cambridge. She says she feels stuck with this company because the last couple times her district sought vendors, only one company placed a bid. 
it's not like we're choosing from among four companies and we choose the one that's, you know, the best fit for us. You take what you can get. A spokeswoman for NRT says they are, quote, in constant communication with our school districts to ensure our students are safely transported to and from school each day, end quote. She added that they're also beefing up driver recruitment efforts. Glenn Kucher with the Massachusetts Association of School Committees says weak competition for school bus contracts is a statewide issue. Any district that went out to bid would be lucky to get a single bid that they liked and certainly would be extraordinarily lucky and rare if they got more than one bidder. Without competition, schools also worry that companies have less pressure to keep prices low. Pam Reopold, the president of the industry group School Transportation Association of Massachusetts, understands why schools think this puts them at a business disadvantage. But she insists the industry is just shrinking and most contractors aren't inflating prices. There's just not enough buses anymore, anywhere across the country. Those that have drivers are at a premium. Reopold argues there are several reasons bus companies kept folding in recent years, particularly smaller family-owned businesses. One factor is a state law that requires school districts and all public agencies to pick the lowest responsible bidder for contracts. You don't have to be the best. You don't have to have the best safety rating, the best maintenance, the newest vehicles. Another factor is when larger national companies purposefully underbid to gain a foothold in a local market. Cherie Lewis with the Association of School Business Officials International says they might propose a lower-than-market rate to win the contract, driving out smaller companies and the competition. That gives them the freedom to raise prices later. If they compete, they'll very much underprice it the first couple years of your contract. And then once you're on the contract, you're kind of hooked unless you got some resources to get out of it. Frustration with the school transportation market has grabbed the attention of Massachusetts lawmakers. In 2019, a commission explored inefficiencies in this sector. The final report didn't gain much traction due to the pandemic, but lawmakers are hopeful they can revisit the recommendations in the next session. In the meantime, school districts are mostly trying to reduce the stress on their bus systems by encouraging more kids to walk or bike to class. In Worcester, officials took an even bigger step. They're running their bus system in-house this year. We'll check in on how that's going tomorrow. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, we go inside a conspiracy theory-packed pro-Trump group that's touring around the country. It's 7.30. WBUR supporters include Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Boston Philharmonic with Benjamin Zander and cellist Hyung Choi. Dvorak and Brahms at Symphony Hall November 12th, bostonphil.org and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. South Korea's president is promising a swift response to North Korea launching nearly two dozen missiles into the sea today. One of them landed less than 40 miles from South Korea's coastline, the first time that's happened since the Korean peninsula was divided in 1945. The missile launches triggered air raid sirens in South Korea. They were launched hours after Pyongyang demanded Seoul and the U.S. end their large-scale military exercises. Russia's defense ministry says Moscow is resuming its participation in an agreement that guarantees safe passage for ships hauling grain from Ukrainian ports along the Black Sea. Russia suspended its involvement in that deal several days ago after Ukrainian drones attacked Russian ships. The Pentagon says there are indications Russia is running low on weapons in Ukraine and may turn to countries such as China, Iran and North Korea to resupply. Air Force Brigadier General Pat Ryder at the Pentagon says Russia has used Iranian drones to attack targets in Ukraine. We do have concerns uh, that Russia may also seek to acquire additional advanced uh, munition capabilities from Iran, for example, surface-to-surface missiles. At the U.N. today, the Security Council is expected to take up Russia's claim that Ukraine has biological warfare labs. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The Massachusetts Health Policy Commission will question health care executives today about how they plan to manage rising costs. The independent state agency was established 10 years ago to be a watchdog over health care providers and insurance companies. Now, as WBUR's Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey reports, the head of the commission wants more power to try to hold the health care industry accountable. Executive Director David Seltz says it's time for the legislature to give his agency more authority to review hospital expansions and prescription drug costs. Inflation and the high cost of labor have made it harder for hospitals to control their spending, but Seltz says families and businesses are struggling too. They're facing some of those same challenges in the forms of inflation. And increasing health care premiums and out-of-pocket costs exacerbate those affordability challenges for residents and businesses. The commission hears testimony today from the heads of some of the state's biggest hospital systems and insurers. Governor Charlie Baker gives opening remarks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. The U.S. attorney for Massachusetts is sending an attorney to help monitor Election Day. It's part of a nationwide program focusing on concerns about voting rights at the polls. The office says Assistant U.S. Attorney Eugenia Karras will handle Election Day complaints along with officials in Washington, D.C. Brookline's law banning tobacco sales for anyone born this century will remain in effect. That comes after a Massachusetts Superior Court judge dismissed a lawsuit seeking to block the law. The rule stops the sale of all tobacco products and e-cigarettes in Brookline to people who were born after January 1st of 2000. The plaintiffs are appealing the decision. The time is 7.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Global Arts Live with Pink Martini at Symphony Hall November 5th. 
Music from across the decades and around the world from your favorite little orchestra. Tickets at globalartslive.org. In sports, Bruins scored three unanswered goals in Pittsburgh last night to beat the Penguins. The final was 6-5. to five. In overtime, the Bees visit the New York Rangers tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics will be in Cleveland to play the Cavaliers. In our forecast, sunny today. Highs in the mid to upper 60s. Tonight should be clear with lows in the 40s and sunshine tomorrow. Temperatures again in the 60s. 56 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Stephen Skeep. Some of the most prolific spreaders of conspiracy theories and a cast of other pro-Trump speakers come together once or twice per month before crowds of thousands across this country. It is called the Reawaken America Tour. Speakers push warnings about elections and vaccines, and many call for evangelical Christianity to dominate American politics and culture. NPR's Lisa Hagen attended the tour's most recent stop in Mannheim, Pennsylvania, and she's with us. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What made you want to pay close attention to what this tour is doing? This is an active subculture supporting Donald Trump's Republican Party. If you go to these things, you know about it. If you don't, you may not realize, but they are linked to a lot of Republican candidates and far-right media. It's like a message board come alive and turned into a political organizing rally. Well, what is it like to be there? It is part Christian revival, part QAnon MAGA Expo and part political rally. This one was at a gigantic sports complex. Organizers told me just under 5,000 people came. Tickets go for $250 or $500 for VIP front row seats. Wow. It's got big name speakers in MAGA world, like former President Donald Trump's first national security advisor, Michael Flynn, my pillow CEO, Mike Lindell. Trump advisor Roger Stone, Trump's son Eric. There are meet and greets with all of these people and lately also baptisms and casting out of demons. It's 20 plus hours of nonstop preaching and speeches like this. They don't even understand the fact that we are in a war and this is the battle of our lifetime. You can't stop my son who is the rightful president and his name is Donald Trump. Oh, they're Christian nationalist. So what? Good. Good. I own it. I'm proud of it. There were almost 70 presenters when I went, and each tour stop is an opportunity for all of them to reach each other's audiences. When you come to things like this and you hear speakers, what you're really being given, you're being given talking points, ideas, new ways to express what you believe in. The show is organized and emceed by a man from Oklahoma named Clay Clark. He's a former wedding DJ turned podcaster. And when the pandemic hit, Clark started holding his own local anti-lockdown gatherings. He connected with Michael Flynn in spring 2021, and this is their 22nd tour stop. Here's Clark. I uh, don't take any income or salary from these events. Uh, and I do that because I'm not trying to 
get rich. I'm not trying to make this a firebrand. I'm trying to save this nation. Plenty of money is changing hands here, though. Carson Massey sells vibrating platforms you can stand on instead of exercising. Ten minutes on this equal to an hour at the gym. They go for $3,300 a pop. And Massey tells me they sell about $150 on an average day here. Gina Paith specializes in protective Velcro pouches for your cell phone. It blocks the 5G radiation coming off your phone. But not everyone is here to sell a product. Everett Triplett wears a crisp white cowboy hat and hands out a free booklet explaining the way God showed him a massive nuclear attack on the United States is imminent. No donations accepted. Passionate people are easily um, talked out of their money. When it comes to the things they're passionate about, they're generous. And so all these T-shirts, political stuff that has on it, the content that makes them go, hoo, 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 they like it, they spend money. In the back of his booklet are research recommendations, which include the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a notorious century-old anti-Semitic hoax. It's themes of a secret Jewish plot for global domination and specifically preying on children all echo in the conspiracy theories of today. This is a war on religion. This is a war on the children. This is Mark Abraham's second time at a reawaken event. And when you come to these places, you feel at home. You really do feel like you're in and amongst good people. And that's a big difference. Abraham says outside this space, there are no civil conversations, just accusations of racism and homophobia. With his next breath, he starts telling me about a hypothetical family trip. A warning for listeners here, he's about to use violent, transphobic language. And my granddaughter goes in, and I see a masculine-looking woman going into that bathroom. I'm stopping her. And if that person has not completed their transformation, I will physically finish it for them. He also tells me he follows the golden rule, and I ask how that squares with his violent threats. I square that with the golden rule because if you know right from wrong. In reality, transgender people were murdered at record numbers in the last two years, and they faced disproportionately high rates of assault and other forms of abuse. Later, I asked Clay Clark, the organizer, about what Abraham said and the prominent theme of trans and homophobia I heard all weekend. I ask if he takes any responsibility for the messages his audience hears about evil, demons, pedophiles. After a lot of back and forth, he finally says this. I agree with what you just said. Yeah. I think you saw it in Nazi Germany. You put a you know, star on people and you dehumanize them. I also, not you, but people were dehumanized. I also think putting a mask on someone is dehumanizing. That's the same comparison Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene publicly apologized for making last year. She said she knows the remark is offensive. Here at the Reawaken tour, many agree with the analogy. Clark says for now, he plans to continue these events well into next year. Reporting from NPR's Lisa Hagen, who's still on the line. And Lisa, listening, I can tell that many people like being at these events, but gosh, they seem pretty pricey. What kind of people are they drawing in? 
Most of these folks identify as Christians, but a number I talked to told me they've left their church communities. Uh, I talked to Anthea Butler of the University of Pennsylvania, who thinks the pandemic did a lot to displace people from churches. And events like Reawaken and other pro-Trump rallies are filling that gap. So all of those things that people get sociologically from church, connection, validation, affirmation, Add in election denial, vaccine, and anti-government conspiracism, and it's a very potent mix that Butler says the Republican Party has largely embraced. There's always been people who have thought about, you know, what is going to happen in the end times, or when is the world going to come to end? The real question you want to ask is why aren't they talking about that anymore? She says the focus has evolved to taking power now. Most everyone at the Reawaken events say they're going to vote next week, but I also heard at least one speaker say that God is unconventional and doesn't need an election for Donald Trump to become president. And here's Lisa Hagan. Thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, a school in Ukraine that tries to get more women involved in the war effort there by training them to pilot drones. Our weather forecast, sunshine today. Highs in the upper 60s, clear tonight with lows in the 40s. Sunny again tomorrow with temperatures in the 60s and really sunshine through the weekend. It should get into the 70s this weekend. It is 56 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. And Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. In business news, the Federal Reserve is once again expected to raise interest rates today, but Senator Elizabeth Warren and Congressman Stephen Lynch say they're concerned that higher rates will put American jobs at risk. The lawmakers wrote a letter to Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell this week. They highlighted recent projections showing that raising rates could increase U.S. unemployment by almost a percentage point next year. New Bedford-based Vineyard Wind is starting to lay cables for a wind farm off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. The company says the cable work will likely continue into early next year. It expects the wind farm to generate power for the state by the end of 2023. The time is 745. Port for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds, working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor-advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at fjc.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Women have played a big role in Ukraine's resistance to Russia's invasion. Now, a new school has opened to give Ukrainian women the chance to help their country in a different way, piloting drones. NPR's Ashley Westerman has more from Kyiv. On a chilly, blustery day in Pyrohuv Park in southern Kyiv, Tatiana Kuznetsova is getting ready to take flight. Well, she isn't 
exactly, but the black and orange drone she'll be piloting is. Kunitsova checks the battery and turns on the controller. After we get the information that we are ready to go, we can take off. The drone, only a foot across, weighing about two and a half pounds, lifts off the ground, hovering for a bit at first. She then turns the drone, pointing the camera towards us. We see ourselves in the controller screen. Kunitsova is one of the first students at Female Pilots of Ukraine, a school that opened a couple of months ago with the mission to teach Ukrainian women to operate drones. She's here with five of her classmates practicing. We all realize that this is a war of the 21st century. Both the Ukrainians and Russians use drones for reconnaissance and fighting. Kunitsova, a seven-year police veteran, says she chose to take these free classes to learn new skills, just in case. There may be a time when women need to support and help our men on the front lines. The military did not respond to questions about how many female drone pilots there are right now, but they're rare, according to military sources. And the school is trying to change that the first of its kind to solely focus on training women, civilians as well as those already in Ukraine's security forces. In the first lesson, I teach about why aerial reconnaissance is important and how and where intelligence is transmitted. That's instructor Mikita Kosov. He's been piloting drones for a year and a half, and after he was called up to the military after Russia's invasion, he's been doing it for the armed forces. In a mixture of in-classroom and field training, students work in pairs, a pilot and a navigator. Kosov says a good drone pilot has to be a virtuoso in working with maps. He has a compass in his head and he immediately understands without a navigator what he's seeing. School founder Vitaly Borovic says students could take their new skills into the Ukrainian army if they want. And women from all walks of life are signing up. Journalists, artists, marketing professionals. For me, was uh, very surprised that uh, 80% of our students want to go to, to zero line. Meaning the front line. Borovic says the school has about 30 students now with 40 applications pending for the next course cycle. He says his school costs more than $3,000 a month to operate, a budget that's currently coming out of his own pocket and supplemented by donations from students and their friends and families. But they could use more money for drones, instructors, equipment. Our military sector needs uh, many, many pilots. We need it now. I hope we will win next year, but we must be prepared for many years. Back at Pirohiv Park, Tatiana Kutnetsova has landed her drone safely back on the ground. This is a unique initiative. Women can do this. Ashley Westerman, NPR News, Kyiv. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us at 11 o'clock this morning for Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is in the studio with me right now to tell us what's coming up on today's program. Good morning. Good morning. And yes, please do stay with WBUR until 11 a.m. I hope you'll be able to enjoy uh, our show and join us. Deb, we've all been following the story of the families who were moved to hotel rooms as spillover shelter in 
Methuen, Plymouth, Kingston, Mm -hmm. a lot of dismay because the state had not notified the cities and towns that the families were coming. So today we've actually uh, reached out to nonprofits on the ground in all three cities that are working with the families in the hotels. And they're going to come together. We're going to talk about what are the challenges for the families? What needs do they have? What resources are shy? What are they getting back in response from the state government, uh, et cetera? So we're going to have a chance to kind of dive b- beneath that and get the on-the-ground perspective from nonprofits in all three communities. All right. Interesting. Thanks, Tiziana. Thanks, Deb. That's Radio Boston, 11 and 3 p.m. today here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The other day, NPR's Planet Money podcast team got a cassette in the mail. A cassette? You know what that is, right? Anyway, it had a word on it that they're very interested in. And the word was inflation. This cassette tape got reporters Sarah Gonzalez and Erica Barris tangled up in the music industry. We wanted to see what this cassette was about. So we put it in a cassette player. And... You know, it's a song with the food and rent going up there. A cool one Man, about inflation. Just and it's good, right? A little funky. You see, inflation and taxation has taken over our great nation. This song was actually recorded 47 years ago in 1975 when inflation was 9%, about the same as now. But the song was never released. The band that recorded it was called Sugar Daddy and the Gumbo Roo. Yeah, Sugar Daddy and the Gumbo Roo. <laughs> this is the singer, Ernest Jackson. You see, it takes a lot of ingredients to make a good gumbo. You can't make a good gumbo without a roux. It's like a butter and flour base. Ernest Jackson is kind of like the roux to this song. He wrote it and is the lead singer. A lot of people say I sound like Satchmo now, you know, even when I talk. Satchmo, Louis Armstrong. The guy who sings... What a wonderful world. I kind of hear that, yeah. Yeah. And everyone from this band went on to make it in the music industry, except the guy who wrote the song. Ernest has dreamt of stardom for almost 70 years. Of course, yes, indeed, because that's been my dream since I was a little boy. I've always wanted to be a superstar. I feel like I had the potential. And I, you know, I haven't given up my dream. Listen, there are millions of artists and songs like this that no one ever discovers. And just because a song is good and of the moment doesn't mean it'll be a hit or make anybody any money. But we're going to try. We're going to take this long lost song from the 70s and resurrect it. Because to us, Ernest's story is like a classic music industry story. He started singing when he was five years old. By 14, he's performing. In nightclubs. That's how it was down deep south here in Louisiana. We could do our thing <laughs> in the nightclub at 14. This is when Ernest recorded his first song with a friend. Let's see. Uh, 
Give me your love and all your time. Don't ever leave me, cause I'd lose my mind. This is 14-year-old Ernest. 14, yeah, 14. In college, he's with a band called Black Blood and the Chocolate Pickles. And, of course, Sugar Daddy and the Gumbo Roo. And all this time, he's just trying to land a record deal. And he gets close. He had a hit once. This is Ernest doing a cover of an Al Green song. If you've heard this song on an old jukebox, chances are you've heard Ernest's version, not Al Green's. His cover peaks at number 22 on the Billboard magazine Hot 100 charts. He's on the radio. But Ernest never got any royalties for this song. He got a flat fee, $150 one time. Then he gets an idea for a new song. It's the 70s. Inflation is going up. Everyone felt the pinch. Yeah, it was hard back then. I'm going to tell you the truth. Money could only go so far, you know. And it's just like today. He decides to write about inflation. Boom. Dem, boom, 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 boom. Inflation is in the nation. And it's about to put us all away. You see? Sugar Daddy and the Gumbo Roo, the band, they like the song. They decide to record it. They made a demo, that cassette. But then they don't do anything with it. Nobody else has heard that song except the people who recorded it. Ernest was sort of scared to play it for anyone because he thought anyone could just hear it and say it's theirs. He didn't know how to register a copyright for a song. That's right. I didn't know. I did not know. Inflation, like regular inflation, eventually goes down. So this song kind of misses its moment. The rest of the band, they go on to play with famous people in famous bands. The bass player is actually a very young Randy Jackson, original judge on American Idol. But Ernest, he stays in Baton Rouge, waiting tables for 33 years at nice restaurants, the kind where you serve the drinks from the right, food from the left. I made a very good living. I I raised all my children. Today, Ernest is a grandpa and a great grandpa. He's retired, but he still sings. He has shows here and there. He's just never been discovered. I've never been signed by a label. That's my hope and dream. Still is, at 74 years old. So we've decided we are going to try to become like a record label ourselves, just to get this one song out there and try to figure out how the music industry works. Because inflation is back, so inflation the song might have a second shot. Ernest says making it, for him, would be getting in the car and hearing himself on the radio. Like he used to. Yeah, Q106.5. Q106.5? You want to be on Q106.5? Yeah. So we pick up Ernest one day for a highly orchestrated car ride. I'm in. <laughs> we asked Q106.5 if they could play his song. It's DJ Incredible. Today we're shining a light on a song sung by one of Bat Rouge's own. Ernest Jackson. Here's Inflation on Q106.5. You know. Ernest says nothing for almost a full minute. Just to survive. You see inflation. He's just kind of smiling and shaking his head like, no, 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 no. Oh, this is, this is blowing my mind. Is this actually, that's Q106, right? Yeah. 
How did they get that? <laughs> How do you think they got it? We sent it to them. Oh, man, that's out of sight. I mean, I can't believe this. So we got one station in one city to play the song. Next up, the world. Wait, can we be a, can we be a label? Sure, why not? Like, what do we have to do to be a label? Say you're a label. <laughs> All right, we're a label. I'm Sarah Gonzalez. I'm Erica Barris. Our label, Planet Money Records. On All Things Considered today, find out what it means to be a label and stream the song Inflation anywhere you get your music. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Our weather forecast, sunshine today. Temperatures in the mid to upper 60s. Clear skies tonight, lows in the 40s. And sunny again tomorrow with temperatures in the 60s. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton with state-of-the-art, fully-equipped BL2 lab space just outside Cambridge. Learn more at LabShares.com. And Park School Brookline, where curious early learners grow into confident, engaged scholars. Open house for grades pre-K through 8 on November 6th. Parkschool.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. South Korea says North Korea continues to fire missiles at its coasts, and so the South has fired a missile back. It's Wednesday, November 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the Federal Reserve is expected to announce another rate hike today. Most expect a three-quarter point increase. The cost of money is going up. Interest rates have risen at a whiplash-inducing speed, and we're not done yet. Also, former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appears to be heading toward victory in Israel's elections. Plus, protesters in Iran continue to defy the government there, which is promising harsh action against the demonstrators. People are taking these grave risks to their safety because they want to make a point. Forecast says sunshine today and right through the weekend. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Policymakers for the Federal Reserve will conclude their two-day meeting today. They're widely expected to boost short-term interest rates by three-quarters of one percent. If they do, it'll be the fourth straight interest rate hike of that size. It means consumers will pay higher rates on a variety of loans, from cars to houses. A new poll by NPR, PBS NewsHour Marist, finds that key Republican voting groups are a lot more enthusiastic about the upcoming midterm elections than Democrats. But NPR's Domenico Montanaro says voting is already well underway in many states. Well, some 55 percent of people in the survey said that they have either already voted or will do so this week. But Democrats are far more likely to say that they will vote early. And of those who have already voted, Democrats by a two to one margin over Republicans say they have. So be careful when you start hearing about uh, early voting numbers and trying to interpret those. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reporting. 
Pennsylvania's Supreme Court has ruled that the state's local election officials should hold off on counting mail-in ballots that arrive on time but without handwritten dates. As NPR's Hansi Lo Wang explains, the ruling could lead to more legal challenges in the key swing state. Pennsylvania law requires mail-in ballots be submitted in envelopes that include a date handwritten by voters. But there's been a lot of legal back and forth over what to do with mail-in ballots that arrive on time to be counted but are missing a handwritten date on the envelopes they're in. The Republican National Committee and other GOP groups recently asked Pennsylvania's Supreme Court to rule that those kinds of ballots should not be counted for the midterm elections. But the state court has now ordered local election officials to put aside any ballots that arrive in undated or incorrectly dated envelopes. The order sets up more legal fighting, including a potential appeal to the federal courts. Hansi Wong, NPR News. Vice President Harris will be traveling to Massachusetts today to promote the Biden administration's efforts to lower energy costs ahead of the winter months. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports inflation in the U.S. economy is a top issue for voters in the congressional midterm elections. Harris will visit a union hall and training facility in Boston to talk about the administration's plans. It's allocating $4.5 billion to states, territories, and tribes to help lower heating costs. The funding will go toward utility and home repairs to lower heating and cooling bills, particularly for lower-income families. And $9 billion will go toward helping people update their homes with things like heat pumps, which are more energy efficient. Deepa Shivaram. NPR News, Washington. Turkey says Russia has agreed to resume participating in a grain shipment agreement. It permits Ukrainian grain to be shipped out of Black Sea ports. Russia had paused its participation after some of its naval ships were attacked last weekend in the Black Sea. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling the leadership shakeup at the MBTA long overdue. General Manager Steve Poftak announced yesterday he's stepping down in January. He's led the T for four years. During that time, the T has come under federal scrutiny for safety issues. Poftak's successor will be chosen by the next governor. Private school bus companies help school districts shuttle students to and from classes. But as WBUR's Carrie Young reports, districts have fewer transportation options because the number of bus companies in this market has been decreasing since the 1980s. Many school leaders acknowledge ongoing issues with bus delays and communication, but they say their hands are tied because they're only getting one or two companies to bid on their transportation contracts. Beth Ann Cornell, a school committee member in Salem, says the shrinking market for bus services makes districts like hers feel stuck. It's not like we're choosing from among four companies and we choose the one that's the best fit for us. You take what you can get. A statewide school transportation industry group says bus companies generally provide great service and do not inflate their prices. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Only about a third of Massachusetts' share of federal pandemic education funds has been spent so far. The state has about $3 billion allocated under the Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Fund. Education officials say money has gone to all Massachusetts 
targeted school systems with a focus on what the state calls disadvantaged districts. Attorney General Maura Healy's office says it does not plan to appeal the settlement that was awarded to a wrongfully convicted man, even though her office offered to settle the case for much less. Last month, a jury awarded Fred Weichel $33 million for a wrongful conviction for which he was behind bars for almost 36 years. Under state law, that award will be capped at $1 million. The Boston Globe reports that Healy's office originally offered a $200,000 settlement. Public school teachers in South Hadley say if they don't get a new contract by the end of the day, there's going to be consequences. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports. Members of the South Hadley Education Association voted to work to rule as of tomorrow if no deal is reached today. That means teachers will stop all voluntary activities and only work contractually obligated hours, nothing more. No more coming in early to lesson plan or staying late to grade homework and tests. This is the second year that South Hadley teachers have been working under terms of their previous contract. The union says it's fighting for better staffing and better pay, especially for paraprofessionals. The acting superintendent of school says the district wants an agreement that's fair to teachers and fiscally responsible for the town. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The time is seven minutes past eight. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. In sports, the Bruins topped the Penguins 6-5 to in overtime in Pittsburgh last night. They'll visit the New York Rangers tomorrow. Celtics visit the Cleveland Cavaliers tonight. Our weather forecast is calling for sunshine today. Highs in the 60s. Tonight, clear skies, lows going down into the 40s. Sunny tomorrow with temperatures in the 60s. And sunshine stays with us through the weekend. Temperatures this weekend getting into the 70s. It is 56 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft. Used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Israel's former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu seems poised to take power once again. Israel's votes are not all counted, and assembling a governing coalition is tricky, but Netanyahu's party received the most votes in this week's election, and he consolidated the right-wing vote with hard-right campaign promises. So let's talk this through with NPR's Daniel Estrin, who's in Tel Aviv. Hey there, Daniel. Hi, Steve. How certain is Netanyahu's win? It does seem fairly certain. By this point, most votes have been counted, at least 85% of the votes. Netanyahu has the big advantage. His Likud party got most of the votes. His allies on the far right have come in third. um, And together, it seems that they will pretty easily be able to form a coalition together with Orthodox Jewish parties. So here's what Netanyahu said to his supporters early today. He was still being cautious, but he said, we are on the cusp of a very big victory. Um, And it is looking good for him because parties opposing him 
are much more splintered than the parties that are uh, in favor of him. Two parties on the left may not even make it into parliament this time. Uh, we're talking about a secular Arab nationalist party, which probably didn't get enough votes. And it's unclear if Meretz, the left-wing pro-LGBTQ party, will even make it into parliament this time. If both of those parties would have made it, we probably would have seen a stalemate. Wow. So Netanyahu was prime minister in the 90s, was then prime minister more recently for a decade, was then finally pushed out of office amid allegations of corruption and other things, uh, could be back in power. How are Israelis responding? Well, there were celebrations at uh, the campaign headquarters of the far right uh, calling for the next government to have tough law enforcement against Palestinians and Palestinian citizens of Israel. One Netanyahu Netanyahu voter told us today that he doesn't care who's prime minister. What's important to him is the Jewish character of the state. Now, on the other side of the map, Israelis who are opposed to Netanyahu are frankly besides themselves this morning. You see a lot of that on social media. We ran into uh, Marik Stern today. He's political analyst, but also a very unhappy voter. The feeling is uh, quite bad, actually. Sort of despair. The country is going into a very clear direction of uh, nationalism and uh, religious extremism. But we will be okay. The problem would be with the Palestinian citizens of Israel, the Palestinians in the West Bank. All of them are in uh, real danger for the near future. And, you know, he is right. We have spoken to worried Arab voters, uh, especially worried about a far-right provocateur, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is poised to be a cabinet minister in a likely Netanyahu government. Setting aside the personnel, is it really clear um, what a Netanyahu government would do? I think the biggest changes that we would likely see is mostly the weakening of the independence of the judiciary. Netanyahu is on trial for corruption. He wants to avoid going to jail. And his allies have made it very clear they're ready to make far-reaching changes to uh, checks and balances in Israeli democracy. Okay, again, if you missed the top, Israel held another election. Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party is in the lead, and he appears to be poised to form a governing majority, a governing coalition. NPR's Daniel Estrin, thanks so much. You're welcome. There are a handful of states that could end up tipping the balance of power in the U.S. Congress. Nevada is one of them. Democratic U.S. Senator Catherine Catherine Cortez Masto faces Republican challenger Adam Laxalt, who's backed by former President Donald Trump. Three other congressional Democrats in the state are facing stiff challenges. So is Nevada's Democratic governor, Steve Sisolak. Our co-host, A. Martinez, went to Nevada to talk with voters who could make the difference. All these contests could be heavily swayed by Latino and working-class voters in Clark County, Nevada's most populous jurisdiction, where four out of every five Latinos in the state live. That's why we went there, to speak with some of those workers and the Democrats and Republicans racing to win their support. The battle for Las Vegas' working class is playing out here in Sunrise Manor, a majority Latino neighborhood on the city's east side. Hi there. Hello. Uh, Is this a Reyes family? Yes. Is um, David Estado or no? No, no, he's not here now. Bueno, um, I have information for him, actually, for the upcoming election. Okay. Um, We're just talking to Latino voters about participating. Helga Tosti is with Operación Vamos. It's the National Republican Senatorial Committee's Get Out the Vote campaign targeting Latinos. Nevada's sort of like the new Florida, and that it's a state that becomes more diverse, but is also voting more Republican. He says there's a growing number of Republican voters in this neighborhood. And so we think if we keep up the pressure, we're going to be able to flip the state. 
Operación Vamos has reached out to more than 300,000 voters in Nevada since April, according to Tosti. There are more than 2 million registered voters in the state, and their goal is to drive support for GOP Senate candidate Adam Laxalt. Tosti walks up to front doors holding Republican literature in Spanish and English. He says many people in this neighborhood work long hours on construction sites or in the glitzy hotels and casinos lining the Las Vegas Strip. On one street, he spots two young Latino men sitting in folding chairs on a driveway. He meets Guillermo Perez, who's unwinding with his cousin after work. Perez says he doesn't follow politics closely, but his uncle supports Nevada's Democratic governor. He says his uncle told him the Republican challenger, Joe Lombardo, would be bad for Latinos. It won't go good for, you know, for us, the okay. Hispanics. And, you know, our, our people, you know, like immigrants and stuff like that. You know, you know about Joe Arpaio from Arizona, you yeah, know, I mean, he, he's kind of like the I don't same think, guy. I don't yeah. think, yeah. Well, from what I heard, he's kind of like the same guy as him. Arpaio is the former sheriff of Maricopa County in Arizona. He was convicted in 2017 for willfully defying court orders to stop detaining undocumented immigrants and racially profiling Latino drivers, but was later pardoned by the Trump administration. Despite what he's heard about Lombardo, Perez says he does not identify as a Democrat. His friends say good things about Trump and his mom votes Republican. Lately, though, he's been thinking about getting more civically engaged. I have never even voted. But this year, I think me and my lady are also willing to vote, you know, because we're at that age where it's like, you know, quit playing around. We need to look out for our communities and stuff and see what's good for our children, you know, because we do have kids now. Tosti says he can't be sure if Bedez will vote his way, but he thinks just having a conversation is important. Part of it is like the exchange of ideas, you know, offering a different perspective. Um, and part of it is, you know, at the end of the day, you never know. He says a voter who seems on the fence or disengaged right now could easily vote Republican later. If we can get 20% of the vote in this precinct, which is normally very Democrat, that's great. If I get 25, what's happening? We're taking votes directly from the Democrat side because that's who they've been voting for. Not far from Sunrise Manor, Democrats are working just as diligently to keep Nevada blue. This is a packed auditorium at the headquarters of the local culinary workers union. Dozens of people who work in Las Vegas' hospitality industry are gathered here for a meeting that feels like a political rally. The union is a powerful turnout machine for Democrats. Working class people are dealing with inflation. We got these giant oil companies that are price gouging us with high prices of gas at the pump. Ted Papa George is its secretary treasurer. We know Republicans aren't going to take on big oil. Republicans aren't going to take on Wall Street landlords. They're in love with big oil. They're in love with Wall Street landlords. After the meeting, Papa George sits down with us for an interview in a back room. He says Culinary Workers Union members have been hitting Las Vegas neighborhoods hard, collecting signatures for a petition in support of rent control. At the top of that petition, our voters will see in our members Governor Sisolak. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, they've been in this fight from the beginning. And when we have those kind of conversations, the voters, we're seeing the energy. And we lay out a plan to win. A big part of that plan is getting some face time with voters. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm great. My name is uh, Linda Hunt with the Culinary Union. Hi. Linda Hunt works in food service at a local casino. She's taken a leave of absence from her job to knock on doors for the union. 
canvassing the city's north side, she talks to voters about economic policies that Nevada Democrats supported, such as pandemic unemployment benefits. And they also made it possible for us to get that $600 a week. Okay, yes. Yes, unemployment, that was yeah. awesome. She leaves this voter with some Democratic Party literature and says it was a productive chat. I feel awesome. You know, anytime uh, you hear a voter say that they support the cause, that's what we're here for to stay blue up and down the ballot. Hunt also meets people she can't reach. Some are too busy working. Others don't see the point in voting or they just don't agree with her, like Yolanda Palacios. She spoke with us right after union members made their pitch on her doorstep. Lo que no me gusta del, del demócrata es el liberalismo. Mm -hmm. Yo soy más conservadora y yo me guío más por esa parte. Palacio says she doesn't like the liberalism of Democrats. She says she's conservative and that's what guides her vote. Democrats say they are concerned about Latino voters supporting Republicans, but they're even more concerned about low turnout. In North Las Vegas, music is blasting at the Pearson Community Center. It's an early voting site in a largely black neighborhood. John Ralston meets us there. He's a journalist who has covered Nevada politics for nearly 40 years. He says Democrats have managed to hold on to power in the state since 2016, but their dominance is not guaranteed. The real problems that Democrats have here are the same they have all over the country, which is Joe Biden's numbers are terrible. Even in Democratic polls, they're under 40 percent in Nevada. And when you have a U.S. senator who's a Democrat, it's easy to tie her to Joe Biden and the problems that people see the Democrats having caused. And Republicans are capitalizing on that. Ralston says the late Senator Harry Reid helped harness the voting power of Clark County's Latinos. He used to go to Hispanic meetings and say, it's great that you're all here, but none of you are registered, and even the ones that are, don't vote. You need to change that. The Republican and Democratic candidates in Nevada's U.S. Senate contest appear locked in a tight race. Representatives from both parties say they plan to keep knocking on doors all the way through Election Day. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Iranian government is promising swift action against the more than 1,000 protesters arrested since demonstrations began there last month. The time is 20 minutes past 8. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org cars, and thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dublin School, Southern New Hampshire Boarding and Day School, rooted in curiosity, kindness, and fun, grades 9 through 12, open house November 6th, dublinschool.org. And Landry and Arkari, fall event now through the 12th with new antique hand-knotted rugs, Boston, Salem, and Framingham, LandryAndArkari.com. An open-air drug market is thriving in the heart of San Francisco. The mayor has promised a crackdown. Why do people who deal drugs have more rights than people who try to get up and go to work every day and take their children to school? What's happening in San Francisco's Tenderloin? I'm Kimberly Atkins Store. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
In our forecast, sunshine today, temperatures in the mid to upper 60s. Tonight should be clear, lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, sunshine, temperatures again in the 60s and sunny through the weekend with highs this weekend getting into the 70s. It's 56 degrees right now in Boston. Early voting and mail-in voting already underway in Massachusetts ahead of next week's elections. Before you cast your vote, learn more about the ballot questions and other key issues with the WBUR Voter Guide. The answers and explanations you need are at wbur.org slash voter guide. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and Anthony Hopkins, one family's pursuit of the American dream. From writer-director James Gray, everywhere Friday. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. In a bid to quell protests, Iran is bringing hundreds of people to Iran's version of justice. Security forces have arrested many people who marched after the death of Masa Amini while in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. Now trials are beginning, although with much less visibility than trials would receive elsewhere. Tari Saperi Far is gathering what information she can by tracking the fates of defendants for Human Rights Watch. They're facing charges that range from disrupting public order to a very serious charge of corruption on earth that can carry the death penalty. Corruption on earth, what is that? As you can probably already tell, it's a vaguely defined charge in Iran's penal code. The way authorities have described it in relation to the protest is actions such as um, using weapons or widespread use of uh, violence and destruction of public and government properties. But it is still very unclear what evidence they use against protesters. And these charges are vaguely defined. And those who face these charges are not going to get a fair trial and have already been deprived of their due process rights. When I think of Iran as a theocracy and think of the phrase corruption on earth, I'm tempted to think this is cast somehow as a violation of Islam. Is that the origin of this charge? Correct. But Iran has codified Islamic principles into their civil code system. There's a long track record of intelligence and judicial authorities interpreting these vaguely defined national security rights in favor of protecting the state, and actually more than the state, the authorities themselves. Are these trials public? To some extent, yes, which means there's access, that there are reportings about them through official media, but it's not the kind of public trial you would imagine. Uh, for instance, the per- one of the people who has been charged with corruption on earth was deprived of access to the lawyer of his choice. That's what the lawyer has said publicly. And apparently his family also was not allowed to be present during the trial. Independent media does not have access to those who are accused. 
cannot independently report or interview anyone. It's basically an opportunity for authorities to put on stage their narrative through um, these public indictments, including statements made by the prosecutor, the judge, and so on and so forth. Do you have any idea how many people are on trial or soon to be on trial? Well, authorities have thrown out some numbers. The spokesperson has mentioned that something about a thousand indictments has been issued by courts in Tehran province. And on top of that, we have hundreds of human rights defenders, journalists, students, activists, labor activists, lawyers who've been arrested by intelligence authorities, mostly outside these protests. We're also expecting them to be put on trial and be struck by additional charges or prison sentences. Oh, so as far as you can tell, the arrests have gone far beyond the individuals who may have been caught on this or that street. Exactly. Actually, two of the main people we're very concerned about them are the two journalists who contributed to the reporting of the death of Mahsa Jina Amini in the custody of Iranian police. Obviously, what they were doing was purely their journalistic job. Their names was brought up in a statement issued by the two main intelligence agencies in Iran as those operating in collaboration with foreign entities. And we're extremely concerned about their safety. Their names are Elohe Mohammadi and Nilufar Hamedi. I'm thinking about the people who protested and were arrested, and I'd like to know if you feel that it advances their cause in some way to be arrested. I should clarify what I mean. Uh, many times in the United States and elsewhere, people will say, I'm going to be free, I'm going to live my life the way I'm determined to do it, and if you want to arrest me, it's going to be on you, and it's going to clog your court system. Do you think there are some people who feel they're advancing their cause by being put on trial in this way? People are taking these grave risks to their safety because they want to make a point. And every action that the government is doing in order to, quote unquote, repress these protests is actually recentering some of the main demands of the protest, which has been about accountability and fundamental change of the behavior of the system that has been very autocratic, and without any regard for rule of law and democratic norms. Do these trials, in your view, then demonstrate the very point the protesters are making? Exactly. And there is a long history of Iranian authorities using these trials for making their points. And yet we have only seen protests intensifying over the past decade, not going away. And the calls are becoming more progressive and more radical, not less. Needless to say, the Islamic Republic of Iran has lasted more than 40 years at this point and has endured any number of protests over the years and has a very strong national security state. Do you think that the government can use law enforcement to end these protests? Their version of law enforcement, I should say. It appears that one of the very few areas of the establishment that's still working and has a lot more capacity is their security apparatus. Sadly, I don't think they would hesitate to intensify the already brutal crackdown. But what I know is that regardless of where the protests go and if they are repressed or not in near future, they have changed the conversation inside the country and outside. And they have made a very clear point that 
what they want and what they demand is supported by large number of people domestically. Uh, where the system is going to go with this, even if they manage to repress the protest, is unclear to me. Tara Sapere Farr researches human rights abuses in Iran for Human Rights Watch. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Federal Reserve is expected to order another big jump in interest rates today. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. South Korea's president says North Korea will pay the price for launching nearly two dozen missiles into the sea today. One of them landed within 40 miles of South Korea's coastline, the first time that's happened in more than 75 years. The launches by Pyongyang triggered air raid sirens in South Korea. Russia says it's rejoining a deal brokered by the U.N. and Turkey to allow safe passage to ships hauling grain from Ukrainian ports along the Black Sea. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow says the decision was announced by Turkey's president Recep Tayyip Erdogan. In a statement, Russia's defense ministry said it had agreed to renew its participation in the grain deal after the U.N. and Turkey secured written assurances from Ukraine that shipping corridors would not be used for military purposes. Russia previously said it was suspending its role in the grain deal following what it says was a mass drone attack on Russia's Black Sea fleet over the weekend. Russia has accused Ukraine of using the U.N. humanitarian corridors to launch the assault, a charge Kiev has denied. In talks with Erdogan yesterday, Russian President Vladimir Putin insisted he wanted extra security guarantees from Kiev, as well as a thorough investigation into the Black Sea Fleet attack before Russia would re-enter the deal. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Hurricane Lisa is expected to hit Belize later today. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Vice President Kamala Harris will use her visit to Boston today to highlight the Biden administration's efforts to lower energy costs this winter. The White House says it will provide $4.5 billion nationwide for a program that helps pay heating bills. The Massachusetts congressional delegation has pushed the Biden administration to help with the rising costs of natural gas and heating oil this winter. Black and Latino children in Massachusetts are more likely to be arrested than their white peers, according to a new report from the state. It analyzed how young people first come into contact with the criminal legal system. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. When you're under 18 and suspected of a delinquent offense, you'll either be summoned to court or physically arrested. About 18 percent of underage white misdemeanor suspects are subjected to the latter, but for black youth, that number is 28 percent, and for Latino kids, it's even higher. Melissa Threadgill with the State Office of the Child Advocate says an arrest can hurt accused juvenile offenders in the future. Research shows that it leads to worse educational outcomes, more limited employment opportunities, and actually a higher likelihood of being arrested again. 
Threadgill does say that the overall number of kids arrested in the state has dropped sharply over the past several years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The Baker administration is preparing for the transition to the state's next governor. Two advisors who oversaw the transition when Baker took office are now working on the transfer. Bumblebee populations are declining across New England, and part of that is due to flowers transmitting a common disease that comes from bee excrement. Jennifer Van Wyke worked on a study figuring out which plants are less likely to pass along this sickness, and she says her team gave the bees different flower shapes and got creative tracking infections. So we coated their pollen in bright blue paint, and they ate it. And so in about 24 hours, their feces start showing up like bright blue under UV light. It was a really fun study. Van Wyke says the disease is just one reason for the smaller bee population. Pesticides and global warming are also factors. The time is 8.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum online.merrimack.edu. In sports, Bruins beat the Penguins 6-5 in overtime in Pittsburgh last night. The team is waiting to hear about the health of goalie Jeremy Swayman. He hurt his leg in a collision during last night's game. Bees are off tonight. They'll visit the New York Rangers tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics visit the Cleveland Cavaliers. And Red Sox pitcher Chris Sale is staying in Boston. The Boston Globe reports Sale will not opt out of the last two years of his contract, which will pay him $55 million. In our weather forecast, sunshine today, temperatures in the upper 60s, clear skies tonight with lows in the 40s, sunny tomorrow, temperatures in the 60s, and sunshine through the weekend with temperatures hitting the 70s Saturday and Sunday. It is 57 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro promised over and over that he would never go quietly, which is why his silence for two days after he lost the presidential election was so strange. Finally, late yesterday afternoon, the far-right populist leader briefly appeared before cameras. He took another shot at his opponents and Brazil's electoral system, but he acknowledged that there would be a transition of power, and he urged his supporters to act peacefully. NPR's Kerry Kahn is in Rio de Janeiro, joins us now. Good morning, Kerry. Good morning, Rachel. So Brazilians waking up to this news that Bolsonaro is indeed going to leave office? Yes, we finally heard from him uh, that since he lost the election to his rival leftist, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, it was so uncharacteristic of him to go for so long without speaking. Um, and it just fed his silence fed worries that after years of criticizing Brazil's electoral system, he was not going to concede. Mm -hmm. So did he? Did he actually concede and congratulate Lula? Uh, explicitly, no, he did not. He never even mentioned the election nor De Silva's name. He talked for two minutes, attacked his opponents, told supporters he understands their, quote, indignation and sense of injustice because of the vote. Sempre fui rotulado 
como antidemocrático e he said he's always been labeled undemocratic, but unlike his accusers, he respects the Constitution. Then right after he was done, his chief of staff took the mic and said he'll lead the transition of power. So that was the most definitive word that Bolsonaro had accepted the results. So what about what about his supporters? Are they are they accepting the results? There have been hundreds of truckers and Brazilian flag-waving Bolsonaro supporters protesting and blocking major highways in many states throughout the country since Sunday. I went to one outside of Rio de Janeiro. A couple dozen protesters, they're shouting federal intervention. They want the military to come in and keep Bolsonaro in power. 48-year-old Carlos Alberto Neves told me he was a truck driver and says the election was stolen, just like it was in the U.S. But he said, unlike in the U.S., Brazilians will do something about it. He wouldn't go into detail about what that was. And in his quick speech late yesterday, Bolsonaro did ask the protesters to act lawfully. Well, are security officials under the Bolsonaro government doing, doing anything about all these roadblocks? Yeah, they are. The Supreme Court has intervened and ordered the federal highway police to break them up or face big fines. I talked to this truck driver stuck at a highway gas station outside Rio. His name is Mario Guimaraes, and he's 57, and he says he's been stuck in Rio for hours because of the blockades. He said he voted for Bolsonaro, but that he lost democratically, and it's time to respect the vote. He was lamenting how much money he was losing. Hmm. Okay, so now that Bolsonaro has said there will indeed be a transition to power, what is Lula da Silva saying? He's moving forward, preparing for the transition. He named the head of his transition team, his vice presidential running mate, who is a centrist and signals that da Silva is not going to be making any radical moves. Uh, he does take office on New Year's Day. Okay, NPR's Kerry Kahn reporting from Rio de Janeiro. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Federal Reserve is expected to order another big jump in interest rates today. Yeah, it's part of the central bank's ongoing campaign to bring down inflation. The Fed has already raised rates five times this year. Even so, prices just keep climbing. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Okay, so what's happening? The Fed has been raising rates at an aggressive pace. Uh, its benchmark interest rate was close to zero back in the spring. It's now above 3%, and by the end of today, it's expected to be close to 4%. That's the sharpest run-up in four decades. Mm. Greg McBride, who is chief financial analyst at Bankrate, says two big questions now are how much higher rates are likely to go and how long they're going to stay there. The cost of money is going up. Interest rates have risen at a whiplash-inducing speed, and we're not done yet. Rates are still likely to continue to move higher, at least through year-end and into the early part of 2023. And that makes it more expensive to buy a house or a car or carry a balance on your credit card. How much higher might rates go? It's a moving target. On average, uh, Fed officials estimated back in September that the benchmark rate would top out this year close to 4.5% and then go a little bit higher next year. So far, though, inflation has barely budged. So the forecast of how high rates will have to go keep getting pushed up. However high the interest rate eventually climbs, there's also the question of how fast it gets there. Uh, It's possible the central bank will slow the pace of rate hikes after today so it can better assess how that's working in the economy. Uh, Esther George, who heads up the Kansas City Federal Reserve Bank, is among the policymakers who's pushing that approach. 
I have been in the camp of steadier and slower. My concern being that a succession of very supersized rate increases might cause you to oversteer and not be able to see those turning points. The Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is set to meet with reporters this afternoon, and markets will be listening closely for any signal that smaller rate hikes might be in store at the next few Fed meetings. I'm thinking about the difference between the tools the Fed has and things that seem to have contributed to inflation over the past couple of years, like the supply chain problems or labor shortages, a shortage of people in the workforce. But what the Fed has to respond is these interest rate hikes. How are those hikes actually working, if at all, and how are they affecting the economy? Well, you're right. The Fed can't do much about supply chain issues. What they can do is work on demand. And we are starting to see somewhat slower growth in consumer demand, although not as much as you might think. Keep in mind, a lot of people managed to sock away money in the early months of the pandemic. Now, those savings are a lifeline for families. They're helping them cushion the pain of rising prices. But that cushion can also muffle the effects of the Fed's interest rate hikes. So the central bank winds up having to push the brakes even harder. Now, the housing market has slowed pretty sharply as mortgage rates are now above 7%. Kansas City home builder Sean Wood says he's gone from selling a dozen houses a month to just three or four. I think we're in for a rough six or eight months. Typically, housing leads us into downturns and it leads us out of downturns. And I think from the housing's perspective, we've probably been in a housing recession since March or April. Despite growing concerns about a recession, the Biden administration and most members of Congress have stayed out of the Fed's way. Uh, They know inflation is still a top concern for voters. We're starting to see some cracks, though. This week, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and some of her colleagues wrote a letter to Powell challenging the Fed's approach. They're warning that aggressive rate hikes could put millions of people out of work. Scott, thanks so much. Good to be with you, Steve. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, NPR's Life Kit tips for those navigating the challenges of what's called quarter life. Our weather forecast, sunny today. Highs in the upper 60s. Clear skies tonight with lows going down into the 40s and sunshine again tomorrow. Highs in the 60s. It is 57 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house November 30th, buacademy.org. And AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. alprime.com. In business news, Rhode Island-based CVS will pay $5 billion to settle accusations that it mishandled the distribution of opioid painkillers. The tentative deal would resolve thousands of lawsuits from both state and local governments. As part of the deal, CVS does not admit any wrongdoing. Bloomberg and Reuters are reporting that the, agree- that the agreement also involves Walgreens and Walmart. It totals nearly $14 billion. It won't be finalized until enough states and municipalities agree to it. 
Trader Joe's employees in Hadley will begin negotiating a union contract with the grocery chain this week. Back in July, the store became the first unionized Trader Joe's in the country. The union representing employees says bargaining begins tomorrow. Springfield-based Mass Mutual says owners of its life insurance policies will receive the highest dividend ever. The company announced that it set a record dividend for 2023, amounting to nearly $2 billion. It's the third year in a row that Mass Mutual has set a record dividend. The time is 8:45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Emerson Colonial Theater, presenting a conversation with TV host and cookbook author Nigella Lawson on Monday, November 7th. EmersonColonialTheater.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. There's a common misconception about youth, that when you're in your 20s or even your 30s, you're carefree and adventurous, not yet anchored down by the limitations and responsibilities of middle age. But a lot of people in this age group feel unfulfilled and lost. Marielle Seguera of NPR's Life Kit has some tips for how to balance freedom and adventure with stability. Often in this period called quarter life, people feel unsettled, stuck at a job they hate or in a city that doesn't feel like it fits. You feel like, wait, this is what I've been working towards? This is what all of childhood seeks to achieve is this? Satya Doyle Bayak is a psychotherapist in Portland, Oregon, and she wrote a book called Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. She says one of the biggest challenges for quarter lifers is a tug of war between meaning and stability. Meaning, she says, is a feeling of openness, freedom, and adventure. Whereas stability is safety and groundedness. A person might both want to feel like they're fancy free and alone and living the single life and also long to be married with children. And it's so confusing to feel these truly opposing desires showing up inside of us. There are illustrations in the book that get at this. Meaning is fire, which on its own can rage uncontrollably. And stability is the fireplace, which you don't want to have sitting empty. We need both. We need a sense of containment for that fire and warmth and bounty in our lives. In the book, Doyle Bayak lays out a few ways that we can find a path forward in quarter life and bring these opposing sides of ourselves together. The first is separation. It's about understanding the forces that have shaped you and launching out on your own. The sort of invisible hooks of childhood, of our parents, of a church we may have grown up in or a certain culture we were raised in, those hooks linger and they can linger for decades and decades if we don't really attend to them. Sometimes separation is literal. You move out of your parents' house or break up with a partner. But even if not, it's about creating a separate existence outside of these relationships. Then there's listening. That's about trusting ourselves, paying attention to what our bodies feel, to the dreams we have at night, and following those little breadcrumbs of joy. That food that we love, that music that we adore, really trying to allow each person to attend to those nuances and to start learning about themselves again in a way that's quite contrary to most social messages, which suggest it's narcissistic or overly self-involved. Another concept in the book is building creating the life that we want. For people who are hyper-focused on stability, there might be some demolition that happens first. 
Maybe that means taking a sabbatical from work or switching to a different kind of job that doesn't suck the life out of you. Meanwhile, the people who lean towards meaning and adventure might need structure and routine. You want to be a writer? Start writing every day. That's building. So building one's life often requires discipline and effort that manifests in the external world what it is we might be feeling or kind of invisibly experiencing in the internal world. Ultimately, Doyle Biox says the goal is to bring the meaning and stability sides of ourselves together. And maybe that's some of the joy of getting older. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. For more tips from Life Kit, check out their episodes at npr.org slash lifekit. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us at noon today for Here and Now. Robin Young is with me in the studio right now, and she's here to tell us what's coming up on the show today. Good morning, Robin. Morning to you. And, of course, we're going to take a look at all the news, the North Korean missile strikes, something like 20, not strikes, launches, something Mm. like 26 of them. Mm. Um, Also, uh, a new report from Greenpeace. Now, do you recycle your plastics? Yes, because you're a good person. Keep doing that, because probably in our area, it's a little more sophisticated. But Greenpeace has come out with a report saying pretty much plastic recycling is a myth. Less than 5%. You know this, of course. And so we're going to take a deeper look at that and what we can do about it to, you know, make it work a little bit better. And then we're going to give a listen. Now, do you like this song? Everybody get ready to sing. There's a big thing coming up. I mean, come on. (laughs) It's Toto's Africa. It is considered by scientists got together and said this is actually the best song ever because of what it does to you. All right, you've got to look on her face. Okay, never mind. (laughs) But what are your favorite anthems, the songs that just lift you up? I mean, everything from Aerosmith, the Beach Boys. You know, we're going to take a look at a book that gathers the anthems we love. This is one of them. I can see you just are not liking I, I, not like in Africa. Don't fall into you two, that. one. <laughs> okay, we'll find one for you at noon. Here it comes. <laughs> We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity, because they believe there's never been a better time for a nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, you've heard about the more than 100 families housed in hotels in Methuen, Kingston, and Plymouth without warning by the Commonwealth. Today, we talk with the organizations supporting them about what it takes and what they need. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Word for the day, indefatigable, as in the indefatigable job market. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. 
I'm David Brancaccio. There's news that a private sector tally finds 239,000 more people on payrolls in the month just ended. That's higher than expected. It also found wages, our pay, is up 7.7% in a year, not quite keeping pace with inflation, but close. The big government reports on hiring and unemployment are due on Friday. And there's new concrete data showing that houses in mainly white neighborhoods are appraised at twice the value of similar homes in places where most are people of color. This today from the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Here's Marketplace's Samantha Fields. This is not a new problem, but Elizabeth Corver Glenn at Washington University in St. Louis says it's getting worse fast. Neighborhood racial inequality and market appraised values has increased dramatically over the past decade, especially during the pandemic. In the last two years, the average home in white neighborhoods has appreciated by more than $130,000. Comparable homes in communities of color appreciated just $60,000 in that time. It's a structural issue. It's an issue with how we are actually appraising. Junia Howell at the University of Illinois, Chicago, says one of the main things appraisers look at is how much comparable homes in the neighborhood have sold for recently. And given the decades-long history of redlining and racism in the housing market, home prices in communities of color have long been undervalued. What we see happening is that appraisers are way more likely to go under the offer rights in communities of color, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because they have to use previous sales to justify their costs. Until the criteria for appraising homes changes, Howell says, this inequality is just going to keep getting worse. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. Just over five hours from now, we'll hear how high interest rates move up today. Markets are expecting an increase of three quarters of a percentage point. Especially interesting will be to hear if Federal Reserve members are seeing signs of cooling, so they won't have to keep doing this. S&P futures now are little changed. After all the demand and the back orders, prices of new cars are coming down. Here's Marketplace's Lily Jamali. Consumers paid an average of $45,600 for a new vehicle in October, according to an estimate from J.D. Power. That's down from more than $46,000 in July, which set a new record. Ivan Drury, director of insights at Edmunds.com, says an increase in inventory helps explain the moderation in prices. Now that we have more availability on the market, you can actually get a car without having to wait you know, nearly as long. We're not going to have as many people bidding on the exact same vehicles. The reason prices haven't fallen more is that there's still a lot of demand. But that's changing, too, as elevated prices now combine with higher interest rates, says Mike Ramsey, automotive analyst at Gartner. It's actually pulling demand down because the affordability of cars has gotten so bad that it's taken people out of the market. Which could lead to prices falling more than they have so far. And Ramsey notes that's the goal of raising interest rates in the first place. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. On the road and at home, customers can simplify their insurance needs and protect what's important by bundling home and auto with Progressive Insurance. Learn more about Progressive and bundling at Progressive.com. And by Fidelity Wealth Management, helping create plans for a client's full financial picture. Fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by Hangry, a new memoir by Grubhub founder Mike Evans about the journey of creating a multi-billion dollar startup from scratch. Hangry is available as audio, ebook, and in local bookstores.
When you spend your days caring for your mom or dad, it doesn't count, at least in terms of the way we assess the economy using gross domestic product. And many other parts of the caring economy may register in GDP, but are undervalued. Marketplace's senior economics contributor Chris Farrell has been reviewing the data amid calls for reinvestment in helping others. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, David. Let me hear your definition of the care economy. It's a catchphrase, and it's commonly used, David, to capture both paid and unpaid work. You know, caring for children, for elders, and others. And there's this cottage industry of scholars from multiple disciplines, and they argue that the care economy should be considered as vital to the country's infrastructure as more traditional investments like、uh, roads and bridges. And researchers have documented that a robust care infrastructure it can promote greater labor force participation rates, especially among women, and therefore support broad-based economic growth. There is no shortage of economic studies documenting over the years that care work is valuable. Valuable, yet. In economic terms, not so much. No, but don't you think the pandemic was a wake-up call? I mean, the experience showed how vital a robust care sector is to a well-functioning economy, especially the professional caregiving workforce. Professional caregivers—they enable tens of millions of family caregivers to go to work in their respective occupations. This is why caregivers are often referred to as the workforce behind the workforce. And the market for this type of work is broken. I mean, it may be that a childcare center to attract the talent they need would like to raise the price of the childcare, but parents often just can't afford that. No, they really can't afford it. And yet, you're absolutely right, David. This is a a low wage occupation. You know, the jobs often don't come with benefits. The workforce is overwhelmingly women, women of color, and immigrants. And workers have been leaving caregiving. With this tight labor market, I mean, they can do better at a fast food restaurant or a warehouse, and that is so sad because all this caregiving skill is going to waste. So what policy? I guess maybe. I think so. I mean, the case is overwhelming, and a start could be caregiving tax credits and paid leave for family members, the higher pay and ladders of career advancement for professional caregivers. We need large investments in childcare. In the home, community-based care for elders, and they will more than pay for themselves by making it easier for people to earn the paychecks they need, yet provide care for those who need it. All right, an update on the care economy from Marketplace's senior economics contributor Chris Farrell in St. Paul. Thank you. Thanks a lot, David. Ten-year interest rate up slightly, four point zero four percent. It's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM American Public Media. This is ninety point nine WBUR. In our weather forecast, sunshine today. Temperatures in the mid to upper sixties should be clear tonight, with lows in the forties. Sunny tomorrow, highs in the sixties, and looks like the sunshine stays with us through the weekend. Temperatures Saturday and Sunday getting into the seventies. It is fifty-eight degrees in Boston. Coming up on nine o'clock. Stay with us. The BBC is next. Open-air drug market is thriving in the heart of San Francisco. The mayor has promised a crackdown. Why do people who deal drugs have more rights than people who try to get up and go to work every day and take their children to school? 
what's happening in San Francisco's Tenderloin. I'm Kimberly Atkins Store. That's on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Cain, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.